So a lot of what we do today has its origins really in, the, in that 10-year period from 1960 to 1970 when new federations are coming, new advances in training and strength are coming, and more and more people are starting to kind of enter gym cultures, and they now have options. Welcome to the Bar Band Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbands.com. Today, I'm talking to Connor Heffernan, an assistant professor of physical culture and sports studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Connor is also a prolific writer and barband contributor. He's one of the world's foremost experts on the history of strength, strength training, and strength competition. In our conversation, we cover literally thousands of years of strength, from lifting weights in ancient times to the 1960s, where sports like weightlifting and powerlifting began to split off from one another. It's an exciting ride through the history of strong people. I also want to give a big shout out to this episode's sponsor, BSN, a global leader in sports nutrition. From their protein powder, including their partnership line with Coldstone Creamery, to pre-workout, protein bars, and more, BSN has won more than 35 sports nutrition awards over the last few years. Also, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Connor, thank you so much for joining me. And I've read so many of your articles on Barband, on your own site, in a bunch of different publications about the history of strength and strength sports. But this is our first time ever chatting on the phone. So for those who might not be familiar with your work, how did you become a strength historian? So I think when I discovered I wasn't going to be the next Ronnie Coleman and I was studying history as an undergraduate and I thought, you know, this is really cool. Any sort of competitive career for me is not going to happen. So maybe I can, you know, figure out exactly what the history of this is. Maybe there's some gem, some secret, you know, in the history of strength that I can use to advance my own strength, my own training. So it really happened. I was studying history as an undergraduate. I was training in a gym that was established in 1935. I was training with people who were in their 60s and 70s. They were telling me about all these people from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. So it all kind of coalesced into being a strength historian. And since then, no one's really told me to stop. So I think the momentum is built now. And I'm in too deep to actually you know, put an end to all of this. You, you've, you've gone too far down the rabbit hole to get a real job. I feel like that all the time. That's like kind of my entire problem and my entire thing. Um, we have this old saying, or at least I've heard this old saying, that those who can't do teach, those who can't teach, teach gym, which is not fair. <laughs> but maybe those, those who can't lift, teach, and those who can't teach, teach it, they just research the history of it. Is that, that, that's fair. That's what we'll I, say. I think that's fair. I'm just wondering if those who can't you know, do teach and do gym, what happens if you're the one teaching about gym? I mean, I'm really low on the totem pole then. I, look, I, I, I have a fake job. I'm a, I'm a strength, quote unquote, strength journalist. We're in the same, we're in the same boat the same here. Bracket. Yeah, it's fine. This is something where, you know, you tell your parents what you do and they're like, you know, don't tell me don't tell me what you're a journalist of. Just tell me you're a journalist so I know what it means. Like, it's, that's pretty much the line. It's worse if your whole career is based on studying half-naked men and women. <laughs> that's a really hard sell in pretty much any group. Okay, so to, 
you, you kind of fell into strength history because you were interested in it and, and you realized that you weren't putting on 40 pounds of lean mass every, every three months. I get that. I have I had a similar problem. Let's just, let's just say that much. But if, you know, in, in choosing this career path or falling into it, where did you end up and, and where do you work today? Like, how do you, you know, do you show up to strength history incorporated and, you know, punch in the clock, but like, you know, where are you based out of and, and where do you work? So not far off in terms of strength history incorporated. I'm a assistant professor at the university of Texas. So I get to work at the Stark center of physical culture and sports studies. So for people who don't know, this is actually the same school where Ben Pollock, who also mm-hmm. contributes to Barbend, he did his PhD work there. It was founded by Jan and Terry Todd several decades ago. And for people who are unaware Jan Todd was at one point the strongest woman in the world. She lifted the Dinny Stones in Scotland. Terry Todd was a giant, both metaphorically and physically, very strong powerlifter, helped organize World's Strongest Man, Arnold Strongman Classic. So the two of them are kind of the you know, founding figures in my field. And for some reason, I've managed to get a means of working alongside them. So the Stark Center is Disneyland for strength nerds. It really is. I mean, it is the preeminent academic institution for for strength history at this point. Is that is that? I mean, you're biased because you because you work there, so you're not going to like. I'm not going to say Barbit is the worst website for strength <laughs> online, but I mean, is there is there anything comparable anywhere else in the world? Not really, and I think that's what makes the Stark Center quite unique mm-hmm. because Jan and Terry both worked and competed in the fitness industry at a very high level. They got access to materials, people's personal papers, dumbbells, barbells that just you couldn't find anywhere else in the world. So we have the personal papers of George Hackenschmidt, and there's a few articles about George Hackenschmidt on Barbend, you know, Katie Sandwina, uh, Pudgy Stockton, all of these really foundational strong men and women from the early 1900s. You know, we have their lifting shoes, their lifting belts. We have a mouth shield that Otter Coltley, Otter Coltley, an American strong from the 1900s, used to lift weights from his jaw. So you can see his teeth formation, you know, riddled into this 1900s uh, mouth guard. So it's a really unique, one-of-a-kind sort of place. Now, what is what is the makeup of, of the Stark Center? Can, can the public go there and like see some of these, I guess you would call them artifacts, historical, historical relics? I'm, I'm getting like this very Indiana Jones warehouse vibe where they, they lock away, I guess it's the Ark of the Covenant in this like gigantic warehouse at the end of it. It's a little bit of both. So it's actually, it's open to the public and you can go around and you can see, you know, portraits and images of strong men and women from the last 150 years. There's a Joe and Betty Weider Museum kind of wing dedicated to the history of bodybuilding. So incredible images of Frank Zane, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sergio Olivier. But then they also have littered around the gym, you know, here are Professor Attila's kettlebells. Here is a barbell used at the Arnold Strongman Classic. Here is a barbell made of boulders. Here, you know, so you can look, you can't lift them. Well, I certainly can't lift them, but you know, we're not allowed to lift them anyway. But you can actually see these old dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells all around the, uh, the floor as well. So it's a really interesting place for the public to go. And then for strengtheners like me, all of the kind of images and letters and magazines are in the back. So I have an idea. I'm going to pitch you on a movie. And if you want to sell this to a studio, you can, okay? <clears throat> it's Night at the Museum 3 or 4. I don't know how many Night at the Museums they made with Ben Stiller. But instead of being in the Smithsonian, right, 
It's in the Stark Center. And all the artifacts, like the original lifters, these historical figures come alive in ghost form and, and they train you on how to be like a real strength athlete. Yeah, that would actually be great. But when you enter the Stark Center, there's a 10 foot tall Hercules. It's based on the Farnese Hercules, one of these monumental sculptures. He's maybe 200, 300 pounds, 10 feet tall. I don't know if I want him coming alive. Well, you need you need some you need some tension in this, right? How are you, you? You need a villain, some some big bad to fight off like a final boss in the, in this movie. I'm, this is gold. If anyone from Hollywood is listening, I mean, yeah, there you go. Arnold Schwarzenegger could be in it. He's like he's like the wise mentor that you see at the very mm. beginning of the movie, and he comes in in like the third act to help you to like to like. He's like the Obi Wan. Yeah, I think right? that would work. Yeah, use the force, but use the you know. Whatever, force in the literal sense or something yeah, like say, that. Use the force actually works quite well in this. Yeah, yeah. Use your legs. There you go. That's what I'll say. Use your, <laughs> use your legs. So does the Stark Center have, it has that, that public facing component um, and it has, I guess it's the Weeder Museum would be. Yeah, so the Weeder Museum is one part of the museum. So there's kind of a, a Weeder Museum oh, okay. and that's the Joe and Betty Weeder Foundation gave a very generous donation to the Stark Center. There's also a Muscle Beach kind of exhibit we have old wrestling photographs. We have kind of tucked away in the corner a shrine to Tommy Kono, who is one of the United States like most prolific and inspirational weightlifters from the mid-20th century. So you can see his Olympic medals, his World Championship weightlifting medals. So it's kind of sectioned off. So you have a little bit of everything from the world of powerlifting, weightlifting, bodybuilding, and kind of tentatively CrossFit is now creeping in. Tommy Kono passed away. Barbin had was around when Tommy Kono passed away. Yes, and no. it was one of the most difficult obituaries to write because how do you sum up the contributions of someone like Tommy Kono? And I think a lot of lifters don't understand today that Tommy Kono at separate times in his career <clears throat> was arguably the world's best Olympic weightlifter. And he was also arguably the world's most dominant bodybuilder or one of the most dominant bodybuilders at a certain mm. point in his career. And that would just be unthinkable today because we're so specialized. But what he did, I mean, he's, this is the guy who, tar- who Arnold Schwarzenegger references as his inspiration. Yeah, and it's just incredible. He comes at a time in weightlifting and strength cultures in America where, as you say, you don't specialize. So John Grimmick is an incredible weightlifter, but he's now more as a, power, or as a bodybuilder. So you get these people who are just incredible physiques, incredible athletes, and they're able to transcend the sports that they're in. But I mean, Tommy Kono, that is a life worth a movie. You know, he's interned during the Second World War because he's of Japanese heritage. So he's interned in the United States, discovers weightlifting in an internment camp, then goes on to lift for the United States as a very proud American, wins gold medals and all of these contests, like an incredible story. It's, yeah, it's, I think that the history of strength sports and some of these great athletes, the more you learn about them, you learn about their accomplishments, not only as strength athletes, but many of them were incredibly accomplished people, even outside of the strength realm. You had people who were, who were, who were accomplishing amazing things, acts of diplomacy, who were re, you know, who were researchers, who were, uh, many of them, you know, became Dr. XYZ strength mm-hmm. competitor for, for accelerating, you know, research in, in fields, some related to physiology, some, some not at all. Are there any other historical strength athletes whose accomplishments outside of the strength realm you find particularly interesting? So I will quickly plug Jan Todd because she's still, 
<laughs> she's still working alongside me and she's still much, much stronger than me, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest. So, but you are, you're right. I mean, you have people in the early 1900s. George Hackenschmidt writes a lot of philosophy in the early 1900s. This is a wrestler, weightlifter, slash bodybuilder. You have Eustace Miles, who is a physical culturist from England in the 1900s, but he's also a tennis player who wins a silver medal at the Olympics, but he's also a very strong advocate of women's rights in the 1900s and 1910s. So it's really interesting. Then you see the early physical cultures in the 1900s tend to have very esoteric and kind of learned pastimes, but then you move into the 1950s, 1960s, and you see that a lot of the developments in physiology and exercise physiology come from people who are lifters, come from people who mm. are powerlifters, are weightlifters. His name escapes me, but the man responsible for the kind of four sets by 10 reps protocol used by so many physiotherapists rehabilitated himself using heavy weights. Mm -hmm. So you've always gotten this kind of spillover, you know, between the lifting world and then the broader scientific community or even literary community or philosophical community, depending on the individual. I mean, this idea of the Renaissance, I was going to say Renaissance man, that's incorrect, Renaissance person, because so much of the history of strength is the, is the history mm. of, of men's and women's strength, strength training, strength sports. This idea of strength as a complement to kind of a well-rounded person and a self-actualized human, it goes back even much further than the early 20th century or even the 19th century. I mean, we're talking ancient ancient Roman and, and Greek times. We're talking Socrates talking about how, you know, to, to achieve man's strength, he must, he must achieve it mentally, but also to see what his body is capable of. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing that I think is so incredible about the history of strength is that it's so long. It goes back so long. I'll briefly plug, I have an article on Barabend about, you know, <laughs> lifting weights in the ancient world. But it's just fascinating because, you know, as I say, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they're saying to be a, f a fully actualized human being, to use a very 20th century, you know, Instagram-esque <laughs> uh, quote, you should be strong in body and mind. And when you get the creation of our kind of modern gym cultures in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they're looking at ancient Greece and saying, okay, that's the model, that's the system. So the, from the very beginning of the lifting world in the modern sense, we've always been very keenly aware of the need to be strong in mind and spirit. And which is quite funny because to outside individuals, you know, there's the idea of like the muscle bound jock or, you know, the dumb idiot who he or she can only lift weights and that's it. Whereas within the fitness community for really a century and a bit, we've been very concerned about developing the whole person. Well, I mean, there are also some really interesting examples in the past, call it 120, 100 years of, of celebrated academics who kind of have this secondary or you could call it kind of secret strength career. One that comes to mind is I believe Oliver Sacks was at one point a very competitive powerlifter. He had some California state records, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you're right. For many people, it was kind of a secret interest uh, for many years. So I know even Professor Jan Todd, really accomplished academic, she kind of started to take academia seriously after her weightlifting and powerlifting career ended. Because for a large part of the kind of 20th century, weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding was kind of a taboo subject. Mm. You know, it's kind of what the strange people did, kind of what the, the oddballs <laughs> did. So a lot of people actually engaged in weightlifting, powerlifting, and they were very accomplished in kind of personal and private lives. But this is something they did kind of hidden away from the rest of their lives. So I think what's amazing about 2020 is really everyone seems to, well, not everyone, but large parts of the population 
embrace fitness as something that they just do. It's not what the oddballs are doing in the dungeon gymnasiums anymore. I'm curious because we talked a little bit earlier, you know, it was just a few minutes ago, but I feel like we've covered literally thousands of years in a few minutes, <laughs> which is one of the cool things about, about your job. You know, we talked about specialization in strength mm. sports. You know, you go back 120 years and the difference between bodybuilders, weightlifters, strongman performers, circus performers, uh, the lines were blurred, right? You know, there, was, there wasn't that level of specialization. Weightlifting becomes an Olympic sport. There are a lot of lifts to it. It's not just a snatch and clean and jerk like we have today, but you know, there were one-handed lifts. There were dumbbell lifts, et cetera. A little bit later on, you have a relatively, relatively late in the game, you have Tommy Kono who was competing in both bodybuilding and weightlifting, really maybe one of the last to, to do so at such a high level across both sports. And then the 60s and 70s come along, powerlifting develops as its own standalone sport. Strongman develops as its own standalone sport. CrossFit comes along much later, um, but, you know, its own kind of type of specialization. Mm. Are there any, I'd, I'd call them hallmark moments in your mind that kind of signify the increased specialization of strength, you know, bodybuilding kind of becoming its own thing, separate from mm. weightlifting, powerlifting and weightlifting kind of splitting apart. Any moments that, that in your research and in your learnings uh, that come to mind? So I think the 1960s is a really pivotal moment for the specialization of any of these disciplines, obviously, aside from CrossFit, which comes on a little later, because the 1960s is when powerlifting starts to become a recognizable, you know, federated sport. It's also in the 1960s when Joe and Ben Weider start the Mr. Olympia contest, which kind of sees this great shift in American bodybuilding. And it's also the 1960s where anabolic steroids start to kind of infiltrate weightlifting and bodybuilding practices. And with anabolic steroids, you can see a lot more specialization in things like powerlifting and bodybuilding in particular. So it's within this decade that we start to see the three kind of major strength sports, powerlifting, bodybuilding, weightlifting, go off in different directions. Because prior to this time, weightlifting is kind of the primary mm -hmm. uh, regulated sport within the United States. One of the reasons why powerlifting is so late to develop in the United States is because the heads of American weightlifting at the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, are kind of reticent about federating a sport that they think will take athletes away from weightlifting. Mm. And this is what happens. As powerlifting grows in popularity, American weightlifting starts to decline at an Olympic level, but also in a kind of more general international level. It's also in the 1960s, as I said, bodybuilding, the weeders come along, they kind of snatch away bodybuilding from Bob Hoffman, who's very influential in American weightlifting, the weeders become kind of the new face of bodybuilding. And with that, it's new promotions, new athletes, specialization. People start to see Arnold Schwarzenegger. They want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, you know, a, huge, a different strain is created when bodybuilding kind of reinvents itself in the 1960s. So a lot of what we do today has its origins really in, the, in that 10-year period from 1960 to 1970 when new federations are coming, new advances in training and strength are coming. And more and more people are starting to kind of enter gym cultures and they now have options. Mm -hmm. If you or I joined a gym in 1920, we'd probably be trained in weightlifting and that would be it, which would probably help the United States weightlifting team. But, you know, if we joined a gym in the 1960s, we could train in powerlifting, bodybuilding, weightlifting, or just keep fit, losing weight, looking better naked. 
Mm-hmm. So it's within that 10-year period that the fitness industry really explodes, but also kind of splinters, to mix my metaphors. That's really insightful, Connor. And I want to touch on another subject in strength history in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to shout out our episode sponsor, BSN. BSN is one of the world leaders in sports nutrition, and they also have some of the tastiest protein powder around, including a partnership with Coldstone Creamery. My personal favorite of their flavors is the Birthday Cake Remix Syntha 6. I literally hid some in my desk to keep the rest of the Barbend team from using it all. That's a true story. All right, now back to the episode. I am curious, uh, and this is a question that I get from people who maybe not might not be as knowledgeable about the particular strength mm. sports. This is something that someone might, you know, a casual barbend reader or someone just getting into their strength journey might ask, and it's a completely legitimate question. And I give like 10 different answers and they're not very eloquent. So I'm going to ask you, and I'm just going to steal your answer. And this is what I'm going to give. Um, <laughs> but, you know, why is powerlifting not an Olympic sport? That is a question I get with a surprising level of frequency. And, and to me, it's like, oh, it's not, a, it's not a, an Olympic sport because then the answer becomes a little less obvious the more I think about it. But I think a lot of it probably goes back to differences in federations, differences in, in movement standards, the fact that the Olympics already had an established strength sport in, in weightlifting, which itself has gone through changes. I mean, you know, it wasn't that, that long ago that the press was an event in Olympic weightlifting. You know, it, it, it's something that's in living memory for many, many people still active in the sport today. So why, how, you know, why is powerlifting not an Olympic sport? And I guess my question becomes, do you ever foresee an additional strength sport like powerlifting or maybe like something else becoming an Olympic sport? So it's a really good question. And as you've already highlighted, it's actually really hard to answer because when you start to go through the criteria of an Olympic sport, you're like, Oh, actually, no, this might, you know, it might take a lot of these boxes. I think what has hampered powerlifting is, as you say, it's relatively late to the game. So weightlifting is at the first Olympics in 1896. Now, it doesn't really become regulated until the 1920s. From 1896 to the 1920s, they're trying out new lifts. You know, it's not the same exercises being used in each game. They're using weight divisions. They're not using weight divisions. They're not hosting at some games. They are hosting it. But by the 1920s, weightlifting is solidified as an Olympic sport. And they're doing the clean, the press, and the military press. And that's the case up until 1974. Now, powerlifting comes along in the 1960s. I've already talked about there was some hostility to powerlifting within the United States because they're afraid it's going to take away from weightlifting, which it ultimately does. So I think it comes along at a time when weightlifting is already established. It's a very established sport by the 1960s. Powerlifting is new. So it's suffering from you know, trying to gain legitimacy in the 60s and 70s in sport in general. And powerlifting fragments really within about 10 years. Like, you know, by the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, you have regulated tests as in uh, you're being drug tested. There are competitions where you're not being drug tested. There are competitions where you can wear a lifting suit. There are competitions where you can't wear a lifting suit. You know, you have all these different divisions, different federations. How do we decide which federation is legitimate, which is illegitimate? And I think that's one of the things that still hampers powerlifting because it's very confusing to think, you know, which standard do we take for the Olympics? Can you wear a bench suit in the Olympics? You know, can you wear a squat suit in the Olympics? You know, should it be tested? Should it be untested? So these are some of the things I think hamper powerlifting. I will say that I could foresee a future in 10 to 20 years where powerlifting or maybe even something like CrossFit 
could be brought into the Olympic fold because of the popularity of it, because of the you know undisputed athleticism needed in it. Again, to shamelessly plug an article I wrote on Barbend, you know, bodybuilding has been attempting to become an Olympic sport since the 1970s and actually made some headway in the past five to six years when it was included in the Pan Am Games. So if organizers in powerlifting or CrossFit kind of echoed some of the things that bodybuilding has been doing for the last several decades, it could possibly etch out, you know, a role within an Olympic Games because I don't need to tell you, being involved in Barbend, powerlifting and CrossFit are very popular sports. They attract men and women. They're incredible, you know, being used across the life cycle. I've seen 11-year-olds deadlift far more than they should be able to deadlift. I've seen 80-year-olds deadlift far more than I can deadlift. So it's a popular sport across the life cycle and really across the world. So there is a future in maybe 15 to 20 years where it could be an Olympic sport, but a lot of it stems down to how do we organize to Olympic standards, which are different to how a powerlifting meet might go or a CrossFit Games might go. And I should, I should say, and, and actually this is something I really should have prefaced this section with, and my apologies for not doing that. Powerlifting is a Paralympic sport. The, yes, sorry, that's right. You know, you know uh, and Barbara, and we do actually a lot of work with World Para Powerlifting, which is a really cool organization. I'm obviously biased because we, we do a lot of work with them. We, we have a lot of bias going on in this conversation. And I like how we disclose that you're like, just to throw out my allegiance here. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not like there isn't a precedent at the hmm. Olympic level and at the Paralympic level because the bench press is a contested lift in the Paralympic Games. And the standards are incredibly strict. You know, they're not using bench shirts. Um, I would argue that the, the standards for Paralympic powerlifting for the bench press are the strictest of any powerlifting federation in the world. Mm. Um, that, could, that is a bit debatable, right? Because there are so many powerlifting federations. But, um, you know, I really should have prefaced this by saying there is some precedent there for that, at least for that lift when it comes yeah, to exactly. what counts, you know, what, what, what can pass muster. Let's talk a little bit about you know, you mentioned it kind of earlier, uh, should bench shirts be allowed? Should squat suits be allowed? In the days of before powerlifting, when it was weightlifting, when it was the snatch, the clean and jerk, and, and the clean and press, and still today when it's a snatch and clean and jerk, mobility is a huge factor, right? You want to be able to have maximum mobility and flexibility and to move very fluidly and, and honestly very, very rapidly. And there's a lot of argument that weightlifting and powerlifting should switch names, because powerlifting, you're just lifting weights and weightlifting, you're producing the most power mm. uh, as a measure of you know, force and acceleration, et cetera, not to get too much into the equations. Um, powerlifting, nascent sport in the 1960s, started developing more and more between the 60s and 70s. When did people decide to put on these basically suits of armor, so to speak, you know, how did the squat suit develop? How did the bench shirt develop? Who's... Whose crazy idea at the time was, was that? Yeah, and I think this is the thing that's wonderful about studying the history of strength because you're studying the history of human ingenuity, but also humans kind of pushing the limits of what's allowed and what's not allowed within a competition. So again, on Barbend, there's an article I've written on the kind of development of powerlifting. It's based on an article done by Barbend's Ben Pollock, Jan Todd, and Dominic Moray. And really the purpose of this article is to track when these things emerge. When did squat suits, when did bench shirts emerge? And it's really early on in the development of powerlifting. You're looking at the late 60s, early 70s. They're not you know, particularly advanced or nuanced 
devices. At one point, someone chopped a tennis ball in half and you know popped it behind his knee so that it would help him. When he's you know when he's coming back out underneath the squat, we have stories of people wrapping themselves really tightly in bed sheets because you know the tightness will act as a kind of rudimentary squat suit. So really, in the early 1970s, people are using these little tricks and techniques to you know maybe get a few more pounds on their squat or their bench or their deadlift. And then by the kind of late 70s, early 80s, these things start to become formalized. But not everyone like, is happy with these things. And even now today in powerlifting, you can very easily start an argument by asking, well, is that legitimate or is that, you know, is that allowed? Is that not allowed? So, I mean, the bench shirt is banned in major powerlifting competitions for really about seven or eight years in the late 80s, early 90s, before it's allowed back into certain competitions. Because obviously... Other federations are saying, yes, this is fine, but others are saying, no, this isn't allowed. It's cheating, which, I mean, if you bench a thousand pounds, you bench a thousand pounds. I'm not going to argue how you did that because you're much bigger than me. But really, you know, very early on in powerlifting, people are trying to figure out ways to get that little, little boost. And by the 1970s and 80s, people are then marketing and selling, you know, very well constructed aids to their lifts. I, I, I think about, um, you know, in baseball where pitchers will find ways to get, you know, pine tar or a little bit of extra grip on the ball or in football, we have the very famous, sorry to all the Patriots fans out there and the Tom Brady fans, the very famous deflate gate scandal where it was, you know, just, just reduce the pressure in the ball a little bit to get that extra grip. It seems like the early days of powerlifting put all of these shortcuts to shame. It's like corking the bat in baseball is nothing compared to taking a tennis ball, cutting it in half and putting it behind your knees to help you to help you squat. But I mean, ingenuity in lifting has been in the fitness game really for a century and a half. When people challenged each other to weightlifting competitions in the early 1900s, they had so many different tricks and cheats and little methods. Some people would oftentimes nail a barbell to the floor and then challenge members of the audience. Now, who can deadlift this weight? And then when the audience aren't paying attention, they pull out the nails and lift it themselves. So we've always had that sort of, you know, ingenuity in the strength game. At least powerlifting has regulated it in some way. They're saying, yes, you can use these, but only use the bench or the squat suit. You know, only use these little devices. It, it, it's, it's, uh, if there's money in skirting the rules, then oftentimes the rules change. Not the, the rules change to where it's not cheating anymore. Hmm. I mean, the problem with powerlifting is for many decades, it wasn't actually profitable. This is people, men and women doing it for, you know, pride and bragging rights. I suppose in this case, it's when hundreds of pounds of muscle are involved in anything, the rules will change rather than <laughs> the competitors. That's, uh, that's certainly true. And you, you mentioned, you know, you're not going to tell anyone benching a thousand pounds that their lift wasn't legitimate because bench shirt or no, that's that's probably a pretty strong. It's probably a pretty strong person who's worked very hard for that. So you know, criticize at your at your own risk. I think is yeah. what we would say. I think if you can bench like eleven hundred pounds, then you can you know you can punch down, but certainly you can't really punch <laughs> up in this sort of scenario. <laughs> that's that's the hierarchy. I do want to talk a little bit because I'd be I'd be remiss to not bring this up. I want to talk about the evolution of women's strength sports, mm. and I think that's something that still shocks me, even though I've been a strength sports journalist for quite a, for a number of years now is how late 
some women's strength sports became formalized. Now, that's not how late women started lifting. Mm. You know, there, there are the history of strength sports is also the history of women's strength sports going back hundreds and even thousands of years. I mean, there are legendary stories of, of women performing dramatic feats of strength that most men today, most strength athletes today could never, could never fathom. Right. Mm. Um, but some of the formal women's strength sports competitions have been very recent. In fact, the 2000 Olympic games, uh, the Sydney Olympics was the first year that women's weightlifting was an Olympic sport. 1987 was the first year there was a, a weightlifting world championships for women. And for a number of years, there were separate men's and women's world championships. Now we see the two together today and actually women's weightlifting in many ways on social media, you see female weightlifters that have hundreds of thousands of followers CrossFit Games champions with millions of followers on social media. In many ways, the women's side of these sports is somewhat more popular than the men. But it wasn't that long ago that there weren't really official outlets or official competitions for women. So, you know, what do you see as, besides that first Olympic Games where women's weightlifting was contested mm -hmm. in 2000, what do you see as some uh, important moments in the history of women's strength sports over the past 100 years? So I think you're right. It's actually jaw-dropping how recent women uh, like official women's weightlifting competitions have emerged in kind of the history of the fitness industry and looking at you know say 2000 with uh, olympic weightlifting how advanced it's become in really 20 years so when looking at the history of this i mean you can look at the late 1800s the early 1900s we have the first kind of great wave of female strong women people like katie sandwina who, again, Jan Todd has written quite a lot on and Rogue Fitness produced a wonderful documentary on Sandwina. But we have you know, number, a number of very influential strong women in Europe who, I suppose, normalize somewhat, just, you know, just a little bit. They kind of open the door somewhat for this idea of female strength culture because gym cultures for women, I mean, really up until the 1950s, 1960s, it's kind of like light calisthenics, mm. you know, keep fit exercise. If they're using dumbbells or barbells, they're like two pound dumbbells, five pound barbells. And there's no idea of progressive overload of getting stronger. We do get some women who kind of rise to the top despite this kind of lack of uh, promotion of strength. So in the 1930s, there's a wonderful British powerlifter, Ivy Russell, who kind of, like she's incredible. She petitions the British Weightlifting Federation to create a very short-lived women's kind of strength contest. So she goes around Britain challenging other women to feats of strength, travels to Ireland, challenges women to feats of strength. She's deadlifting like 400 pounds at a body weight of maybe 120 or 130. So she's incredible. Now in the United States, we have Pudgy Stockton, who is for many people kind of the mother of female weightlifting in the United States. She helps popularize it in the 1940s. She doesn't get to compete because female weightlifting competitions aren't actually regulated or formalized at that time. But she writes a decade-long column in Strength and Health magazine called the Barbells column, which is quite clever, B-A-R-B-E-L-L-E-S, Barbells, anyway. But she helps kind of popularize some form of weightlifting for women in the 1940s, 1950s. Pudgy Stockton actually holds some kind of rudimentary, you know, very small competitions around that time. And then it's starting to develop. The 1960s, 1970s, again, is a really pivotal moment. And we have to give powerlifting its due in that regard because powerlifting starts to host women's competitions in the late 1960s, early 1970s. 
And the wonderful thing about powerlifting and women's powerlifting at that time is that they have different weight divisions and they're not trying to force female competitors into very strict body standards. Mm. So there is a heavyweight, com- you know, a heavyweight division, middleweight, featherweight, etc. And while that's happening, we also have women's bodybuilding emerging in the 1970s. But women's bodybuilding, since its creation in the 1970s, continuing to 1920, has always existed in a strange nexus of, do these competitors look too masculine? Whatever that means. So bodybuilding for women was very emancipatory. It's a wonderful thing to come about in the 1970s. But there's always been an unease in the rules of women's bodybuilding between what is quote-unquote feminine, what is quote-unquote masculine. And that's why you see things like, you know, the Miss Olympia contest asking competitors to reduce their muscle by 10%. So they look more ladylike or canceling the shows altogether because the competitors no longer attract big crowds. So I think the real landmarks for women's strength cultures, I would say date from powerlifting in the 60s and 70s. Bodybuilding is also important within that story, but I think it has always been a lot more restrictive of female strength, female muscularity. Whereas powerlifting, you know, come on in, lift as much as you want, grunt as much as you want. We just care about your performance. And then obviously we have the explosion in Olympic weightlifting, late 80s, but really in the 2000s. And then the latest wave, which has probably been the most encompassing, has been CrossFit, Mm -hmm. which has just been really incredible and really savvy in showing the world that, yes, you know, women want to lift weights, women want to be in the gym. And they're going to be really good at it. They're going to be strong. They're going to be athletic. I think, as you say, that's the real growth industry, I think, in strength cultures at the moment is women's powerlifting, women's weightlifting, women's crossfit, women's bodybuilding, because it's been held back for so many decades, whereas finally kind of the reins are off and people get to do what they want. And and to give credit where credit's due, not only to powerlifting, but to CrossFit, it's the only strength sport that I'm aware of where for the entirety of it as a sanctioned competition, now CrossFit's a little different because it's a registered, it's a trademark of a company and they also host the competition. So it's not like, you know, no one necessarily owns the term powerlifting. You know, there are a lot of yeah, different so. federations, but for CrossFit, like someone does own that term. CrossFit owns mm-hmm. that term. They're the only strength sport that I can think of that for the entirety of the events as sanctioned competition have had the same prizes for both men and women mm. from, from the inception, from the first CrossFit Games in 2007. The, the prizes were kind of paltry back then compared to, you know, the quarter million or $300,000 checks mm. today, not to include sponsors, not to, not to even mention sponsorships mm. and such, but you know, the prize money was the same from the beginning. They were putting the same emphasis on the female side of the competition as, as, as the men's side of the competition. So as much as CrossFit's been kind of controversial in 2020 for a lot of the things that founder Greg Glassman has said that ultimately led him to having to sell the company, hmm. uh, CrossFit's always shown equal lights on, on both those divisions of, of the competition, which is quite interesting. And, and, and it makes you hopeful that any other strength sports that do develop as the next wave, you know, understand that they, they probably need to do the same thing because that's mm. the standard now and it's expected now. Yeah, and I think that's right. So the only other instance we have of prize money being split 50-50 comes in 1904 and 1905. Bernard McFadden hosts a physique contest in New York and he says $250 for the man, $250 for the female competitor. That's the only other instance I can think of up until CrossFit. And I'd say... I think that's one of the reasons why CrossFit really 
it, you know, the popularity exploded so quickly because other sports, powerlifting was very, uh, you know, forward thinking and bringing women in so quickly. But in other sports, the female divisions were very much an afterthought mm-hmm. brought in. Often it was the women who had to really fight hard to get recognition. Whereas CrossFit is kind of, you know, starting with a blank slate, you know, we're creating this sport from scratch, men come on in, women come on in. And it's really, I think that's what made po- one of the reasons why CrossFit was so popular was it was this blank slate. You didn't have to fight for representation and it was very open and, you know, very welcoming of female athletes. Connor, uh, we could talk about this. We'll have to have you on the Barbed podcast again because we have literally thousands of years of history we could <laughs> we could nerd out about. But but we'll spare our listeners, you know, having a seven hour episode. Where can people besides barbed.com, the best resource for strength sports on the web, where can people keep up to date with the work you're doing, uh, your own personal website where, where you're writing about the history of strength sports? You know, what's the best place for, for folks to, to keep up to date? So with the proviso that I'm very unoriginal when it comes to marketing. Uh, my website is physical culture study. That was the best name I could come up with physical culture and then study, uh, tacked onto the end of it. Physical culture study.com is my own personal website. There's maybe, I think I have a thousand articles on various aspects of the history of strength. Now I started that in 2015 as has become clear in the last you know half an hour. I'm very much a nerd of strength. So there's a lot of different things. Um, and then the HJ Lutcher, Stark Center has a wonderful website that has some of my own writings, but also Jan Todd's writings, who is a much better writer than me. So I'd very much encourage people to look at that. So physicalculturestudy.com or the Stark Center website. And then also on the Stark Center, we have interactive scrapbooks from Professor Attila and George Hackenschmidt, old weightlifting magazines from the 1900s that you can flick through. So if if there's any nerd in you whatsoever, the Stark Center website or my own will hopefully scratch an itch. Well, if you're listening to this, this podcast and you're a strength nerd, you're certainly among friends. Connor, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, we'll feature, some, we'll feature some of your articles that you've referenced in the show notes along with this podcast, along with your personal site. And a big thanks to you for the work you're doing in, in keeping the history of physical culture alive so that we can, we can learn from that in, in the times ahead. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was great. 